Welcome to the 336th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk with anthropologist Peter Redfield, author of Life in Crisis, The Ethical Journey of Doctors Without Borders. A reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. Just a program note here, I want to acknowledge Kristen Urquiza and her work yesterday as guest host yesterday on COVID calls talking about the COVID situation in schools in Arizona. Just a fantastic discussion that Kristen led, and I'm happy to say she's going to be back every Tuesday in September. So if you didn't catch Kristen Urquiza yesterday on COVID calls, please do make time next Tuesday to catch her discussion about COVID in schools in Texas. We'll be talking about activism there to try to make schools safe for kids and teachers. So please join us for that. As of today, September 8th, 2021, there are 4,585,792 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Kurdish-Swedish humanitarian Nimam Ghafuri dies from COVID-19 in Stockholm. This was written by Leila Maghribi and appeared in The National April 6, 2021. An activist who founded an NGO to help Kurdish and Yazidi victims recover from the horrors of ISIS control died from COVID-19 in Stockholm. Humanitarian Dr. Nimam Ghafuri, 52, was described on Facebook by her brother, Karwan Ghafuri, as beautiful, brave, determined, and joyful. Came into this world amidst war, born in a cave, lived your life to the fullest like a hurricane of hope, and you left this world with strength, he wrote. Lokman Atroshi, director general of the Swedish Specialist Hospital, also used social media to express his grief at the loss of his dear friend. She sacrificed her life, career, and health for justice and to help vulnerable people of Kurdistan, Dr. Atroshi wrote on Facebook. At the time that this article was written in April of 2021, Sweden was in the midst of a third wave of COVID-19 infections. The other day I went to the cave I was born in. Every time it feels like being reborn again, Dr. Gafori wrote in one of her last posts, on Facebook in March of 2021. In a 2016 interview with Harper's Bazaar magazine, the cardiothoracic surgeon spoke about being born in the cave her family was sheltering in to avoid Iraqi air forces. Her Kurdish father, Peshmerga, who was fighting Saddam Hussein's army, eventually took the family to Iran and then to Sweden, where Dr. Ghafuri studied, trained, and practiced medicine for decades. After the emergence of ISIS in Iraq, the atrocities and humanitarian disasters that followed, 
doctor left Sweden and traveled to the region to offer her medical expertise on the front line. I was born in the mountains during the war, so I know what it's like to be a refugee. That is why I know how to help refugees now, she told the Danish Kurdish newspaper Gion in 2015. In 2014, she set up the organization Joint Help for Kurdistan, JHK, in response to the Sinjar massacre in the same year, which marked the beginning of the genocide of Yazidis by ISIS. During ISIS's reign of terror, thousands of women and children were enslaved and raped, and hundreds of thousands from the community became displaced. One of the last posts on her Facebook page, the doctor noted how little had changed in the place she was born. The sounds of water, the smell of grass, she wrote, playful kids, all could suddenly mix with smells and sounds of napalm and the deadly silence afterwards. She ended her post with the ominous warning, we have come long yet not far enough from the same danger. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and this is one I've really been looking forward to. Let me introduce my guest, Peter Redfield. Peter Redfield is Professor of Anthropology and Urburu Chair in Ethics, Globalization and Development at the University of Southern California. Trained as a cultural anthropologist, sympathetic to history, he concentrates on circulations of science, technology, and medicine in colonial and post-colonial contexts. He's the author of Life in Crisis, The Ethical Journey of Doctors Without Borders, which appeared in 2013 with California Press, and Space in the Tropics, From Convicts to Rockets in French Guiana, which appeared in 2000. He's also co-editor of Forces of Compassion, Humanitarianism Between Ethics and Politics, which appeared in 2011, and an issue of the journal Limb, which appeared in 2018 on the theme of little, developmental, excuse me, little Development Devices and Humanitarian Goods. He's held fellowships at the School for Advanced Study in Santa Fe and the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, in addition to serving as president of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. Peter Redfield, great to bring you to COVID Calls. Well, thank you, Scott. It's wonderful to be here. Let me start the way I generally do, find out where you're calling from and, and what the COVID situation is looking like there. Sure. At the moment, I'm talking to you from uh, Los Angeles, or more precisely from Santa Monica, uh, California. Um, I've just been here a few weeks. I spent most of the pandemic in North Carolina and Chapel Hill, where um, most of my life has been until recently. Uh, but having taken a new job at the University of Southern California, I was first working remotely and now am uh, in L.A., um, LA has, you know, it's had some ups and downs during the longer COVID story, as pretty much almost any part of the world could say at this point, you know, that things have gotten better or gotten worse. And everyone has had an opportunity to fail, I would say, in, in one fashion or another over this extended uh, uh, experience. Uh, there has been an uptick um, in the past month in August of of cases and uh, hospitalizations, but it looks like it's on a downward slope currently. Um, so it, I would say in terms of, um, you know, the, the widely varied map of the United States, at the moment, California is not terrible. Uh, the vaccination rates are fairly high, especially in LA County, and especially it's obviously demarcated by 
class and and uh, uh, access in a variety of different ways, um, and and what would be shorthanded as compliance um, in terms of uptake. But um, um, let me just end by saying there are worse places in the United States yeah. right now, far worse places. My understanding is a lot of the ICU beds are are full in Southern California, but it's not like they're not overloaded the way that it is uh, elsewhere. But that's what I've currently heard. And you arrive, uh, or you were there, but now there's the the recall election is is going, which is a little hard to understand and follow from the outside. I have to say, I sat down the other night with my kids and tried to. Um, boy, this is, I'm telling the story, it's occupational hazard of being a child of a historian, but I sat down with my kids to try to explain how a recall election in California works. And I literally had to stop because it was so complicated, but COVID's uh, running through that discussion as well, is it not? Oh, absolutely. I and mean, COVID is running through everything these days, one way or another. And in many ways, politics are running through COVID, of course, in many ways, in many different parts of of the world. I know what you're saying about the occupational hazard, having a daughter who was oppressed by having a couple of academic parents. And um, uh, when she went off to college, she told told me once in a very memorable line, the last thing she wants is to have lunch with a professor. She's had lunch with professors her entire <laughs> life. So she's looking forward to having lunch with other people for a while. Um, yeah. Yeah. But um, uh, leaving that aside, um, yes, it's the recall election is hard to uh, grasp, even when you're sitting in California. And it's, I think it's one of these examples of good ideas with unintended consequences, in that the whole referendum, referendum system in California is one where it's meant to allow for a greater degree of uh, direct uh, democracy. But of course, that can cut both ways. And uh, um, uh, you know, even my my uh, uh, educational career for the period of my life where I was in California, which is much, I'm not really from anywhere in an absolute sense, but as much as I'm from somewhere, I went to middle and high school in uh, Northern California. Uh, and infamously, Proposition 13 on property taxes um, altered the, the state of state finances and therefore the... Um, um, uh, the trajectory of educational institutions, both primary and secondary, and, and of higher education in the state. Mm -hmm. So, um, and the recall fits with that too. Um, mm -hmm. And and you know when people are upset with something and tired of something, uh, of it's no surprise that I mean you know children when they're when they're small and they need to go to bed, they they get annoyed with everyone around them typically. Right. And I think that's the state of many voters in many places, including here, although the polls currently make it look like it's fortunately not going to to go through because it's, it ends up being very anti-democratic in the sense that someone could win with a very small percentage right. of the vote if the vote were to replace the current sitting governor. I've been asking guests if they wouldn't mind sharing a memory of this time, which is sort of the impossible assignment of pulling one thing out. Um, there must be many, but I wonder if there's something particularly resonant for you that is like something that is peculiar to this era for you. There, there's one thing which it 
occurs to me to mention, I mean, there are many memories, of course, and there are different periods, you know, by now, this has gone on long enough that as a historian, you would, you'd start to create periods. And, you know, you could say, I'm a historian of the late middle pandemic. Sure. But in the early pandemic, the very, very early uh, pandemic, the first onset in uh, March, or that is the first moment where we became aware it was a thing. Um, I was actually in California then as well in March of 2020, uh, right before uh, I was visiting USC and it was right before um, uh, USC closed down. And I remember meeting somebody who was uh, also visiting, who was giving a a job talk, an interview, uh, and uh, holding out my hand to shake her hand the way that I'm habituated to do. It's the polite kind of gesture in if you've grown up in a context like North America, it's it's something that your body does initially when you first meet someone. And she she recoiled, she pulled back. Um, and then in subsequent conversation, I found out that she had health issues. So she was following this very, very closely. But it was the moment where for me, viscerally, personally, I suddenly realized, oh, this is really going to be something, something here. Uh, because I'd read a lot about pandemics and experienced lots of health situations elsewhere uh, in the world. But this was a moment where all this was arriving home and not just arriving home, but it was arriving into the middle of my habits and my sort of, you know, even the half conscious bodily habits that you have of interacting with other people. And of course, by now I'm, you know, when I see someone else coming down the street, I give them room, you know, and it, and I act in a very different way. So I'm now habituated differently than I was uh, then, as I think many of us, many of us are. But that was a moment that I became aware suddenly that that this was going to be real and it was also going to change. Um, uh, it's so interesting and provokes for me a, a kind of a similar memory from around that time when you you may recall we were we were actually trying to figure out how to adapt that and and because the handshake and in certain parts of the United States uh, the handshake is is like really essential and in certain kinds of things so I had I was living in New Jersey at that time and we have a man who often would come and, and work on our our house really became a great treasured family friend great handshake just a great handshake guy and I could tell it was bothering him, you know, and and so he was experimenting. And at that point, he was working on the thing where you touch feet. I don't know if you ever did that. Like, it's not that easy to do if you're not athletic, but something a soccer player might do. So you stick out your foot, and the other person sticks out their foot and you kind of tap. But you still got to be pretty close to do it, you know, and it's and but he I could see he was. And then after subsequently after that, we went to a fist bump and then eventually no contact. And uh, so your memory really sticks with me. The other thing it makes me think of is that like so many things in this pandemic in the various eras is people with who are immunocompromised have disabilities or more attentive uh, to health because of chronic health conditions who have been telling us time and time again what was coming. And I don't want to read too much into that one interaction, but that really strikes me from that. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's true that... Uh, as well, uh, you know, we live at this moment where people are, and the pandemic has been uh, a catalyst 
uh, for this, where people are becoming aware of lots of norms and lots of habits and entrenched ways of doing things. Um, some of which are, I mean, most of them are in a sense, culturally arbitrary and they've changed through time and, and, and they change in by context. Um, but there are patterns of expectation that uh, you interact with other people in a particular way that does not display vulnerability, a concern for vulnerability for health, uh, that the normative way of interacting with other people, the expectation uh, that's dominant in many social settings is that you, you just expect to spend time with groups in close association, which of course is also in the world of infectious disease when you're most exposed to any kind right. of a pathogen. It's what cities have always done and armies and any kind of, you know, refugee camps, um, migrations, any kind of association of large numbers of people, especially people who are not used to spending lots of time together or strangers coming together. It's often where you have uh, outbreaks. And, um, you know, for people who, who have become aware, have been forced to become aware of their own, own vulnerability through uh, their medical condition, um, it does provide them with a kind of uh, sensitive antenna to that potential that I think was lacking for many of us, even those of us who might intellectually know things. Um, although, of course, there are counter arguments too. You know, there's the hygiene hypothesis, there are debates about, uh, you know, you can also be too sanitized, you can be too clean, as well as as being uh, uh, too risky. I mean, the, uh, life is always this complicated dance and, and balance uh, concerns of health. But those of us who, who have not had to live with that as directly um, until the pandemic, I think, were um, um, short-sighted and, and not aware um, of the risks that we might be posing to others as well as to ourselves. Yeah, it might it might be a theme we come back to because even just your discussion. I guess I hadn't thought of it this quite this way, but again, trying to understand those who are acting out against masks, or who, or, you know, vaccine. I mean, there's vaccine hesitancy, and then there's anti-vaccination politics. But um, somewhere in there, there's a there's a signaling of one's own health. There's a sort of a a, a sort of a testimony that people are giving, I think, to say, I'm healthy. I've heard this a lot, even from people in my family. I'm healthy, so I don't need to do this. A statement of health as a, as a testi testifying to their own health, as a condition. Uh, that's who I am. I'm healthy. And I think that's powerful. And, and I think a lot of people, even when they're not healthy, they're still, they can conceptualize themselves that way. And so their antenna are tuned to something else, um, as you might say. I, I think you're absolutely right. There is a, I, I mean, health is a form of identity, uh, you know, in the sense that, and it's one that people can be very strongly attached to, a sense of their own um, uh, relation to the world and their right. relative vulnerability. And people have different uh, expectations of that. And notoriously, young men, I would say, especially men in general, but especially young men, uh, have a tendency to want to project um, a state of being 
invulnerable and immortal in a sense. And of course, everybody who is very young in a brief period of time who hasn't had a, a brush with with um, real illness or uh, a kind of sobering accident or the a disaster or you know something that really disrupted their lives, I think there is this period where you you can feel immortal uh, when you're young. I mean, I I once the friend of a friend of my parents who was oh was older than my parents had been in World War II. Uh, had been in the South Pacific in World War II and had once been in a ship that had gone down. He was British and gone down and had uh, uh, survived um, a very arduous uh, period of his life and told stories about this kind of thing. But he once, mm. I remember having a conversation with him when I was 19 and he looked at me and he said, I bet you think you're immortal. And I thought, <laughs> in it, because he had been 19 when this happened to him. And I thought, right. he's right. You know, I've, I haven't, I hadn't thought of it that way. I hadn't, yeah. conceived of it that way but that was my assumption in the world and he was gently letting me know that well you'll feel that way for a while until you don't mm-hmm. um and i think that's maybe part of what's at stake with mm-hmm. you know questions of the vaccine questions of behavior and then the other thing which i do think is important to say is the response to covid has been extraordinary it's not just uh covid uh, or just a uh, an outbreak or the spread of a pathogen, a pandemic, uh, which you know there are many uh, examples. Part of what's extraordinary is the wide range of policy that's been enacted in response globally mm-hmm. at scale, mm-hmm. um, and that is striking and unusual. And I, and some of it, you know, has has undoubtedly saved lives. Some of it may not have saved lives. Some of it may have caused other suffering. It's complicated and you know, policy does, people who are making policy, especially on the fly, don't always get it right. And people who build models are building models and models are not reality as we always have to constantly uh, remind ourselves and be reminded. Um, and um, some of the early commentary about this pandemic uh, among the people I'm familiar with, uh, people who, especially in anthropology, who've looked at pandemics, there's been a whole group of people. They were focused very much on uh, potential flu variant outbreaks before H1N1, mm-hmm. and, and the possibility of of a deadly pandemic flu along the lines of the 1918 19 um, uh, outbreak. That was there was a whole set of of um, uh, discussion academically about this possibility. Uh, and they were all floored by the response to this coronavirus. Mm. Um, not just the, the fact of this coronavirus or that, you know, that it was spreading or all the rest of it, but also the response um, and the speed at which you had uh, different kinds of policies, um, uh, including policies of lockdown, uh, which are you know, at the end of the day, they are also like lots of public health. It's militaristic and it's right. you know being done for the greater good. But these are the a lot. There are a lot of fairly crude instruments that are being used to try and control population health. And, mm. and you know, for people, I imagine maybe some of your relatives in uh, Texas, uh, they they don't take too kindly to that kind of thing. Right. And yeah. in many parts That's of right. the world, That's you know, right. people don't. And it, it posed real problems for you know, people, say, who are day laborers in 
in settings uh, like India or many economies where people are making their living daily, if suddenly you shut things down, that's a, that creates a whole other crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so no, nothing is simple in the world of, of public health, especially in emergency and moments of, of extreme outbreak. want to remind everyone you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Peter Redfield today, and we're going to turn uh, to talking about humanitarian aid. I think we were just getting into that um, kind of discussion, and I want to ask you, you've written lots of books, but I want to ask you about Life in Crisis, The Ethical Journey of Doctors Without Borders. There's so many notes in there that I've been thinking back to as I've been trying to understand the pandemic, Um, not just pandemic in places that we think Doctors Without Borders usually would be, like Africa or South Asia, but also what it means in North America as well to think about humanitarian aid in the midst of a pandemic. And I I guess my first question is kind of an open one, which is, um, how do you see that work now? I mean, looking back at it through the glass of COVID, how does Doctors Without Borders look to you and, and the kinds of questions you were asking about humanitarian aid 10 years ago? How do those questions look to you now? Um, sure. I, I, I mean, I would say a couple of things. One, um, I'm very glad I did that project. It helped me understand a lot of things about the world better than I would have otherwise, uh, because I had to learn a lot of background information that I, I simply didn't know. Uh, there's much more work on humanitarianism now and writing about humanitarianism. But when I started, especially at the beginning of this century, uh, um, the early 2000s, um, there was far less and I had to figure many things out. Um, And the great thing about MSF, Doctors Without Borders, is that they deal with a wide variety of health problems. I mean, that was hard as as a researcher because I had to learn about a lot of different things and they're not all the same. I mean, you can, you can die from lots of things. You can get sick from lots of things and the treatment is not identical even in a domain like uh, what anthropologists call biomedicine, modern scientific medicine. It, it has a range of therapeutics for different kinds of conditions with different expectations and it's better with some things and worse with other things. Uh, as everyone who's visited uh, any hospital or clinic or doctor's office uh, knows. Um, and um, the um, uh, the plus side of that as a researcher is uh, it was a lot of work, but I learned about a range of things. Looking back on it 10 years later, I mean, there had I known there was going to be a big Ebola outbreak in West Africa, I would have... Uh, written more about uh, their uh, legacy in Ebola. They're, it's a very small piece of the book because it's not a common disease or was not common prior to that outbreak in West Africa. It was thought of as being relatively relatively exotic. Uh, but then, of course, it was in many ways a kind of forerunner for uh, the coronavirus in terms of an awareness 
of potential vulnerability in the United States. And people had been modeling Ebola for some time. It's, it's in the right, all the writing about outbreak diseases and new infectious diseases. It had had a place of honor uh, because it's a highly dangerous uh, uh, pathogen to uh, come down with. Um, and so I would have, I would have spent more time thinking about Ebola, um, uh, which is fascinating. And that was a fascinating story also for uh, MSF because it's a moment where they really were on the front lines, um, uh, literally. And it's very strange to have a voluntary organization, an NGO, a non-governmental organization playing a central role in global health. Um, uh, but that, in that instance, they were. Uh, with this current uh, pandemic, it's affected them. It's affected all of their projects. Projects. It's affected every situation around the world. Uh, it's difficult to simultaneously be dealing with a um, pandemic which is truly spread widely, widely, which has multiple variants uh, and could appear at. at at any notice when you're also dealing with other disasters, you're dealing with other illnesses. And of course, one of the real problems of the pandemic from a healthcare perspective, is not just uh, COVID itself as a disease condition, but it's also um, the fact that if you have a lot of COVID patients that puts pressure on the whole healthcare system, and it means people who have other problems may not get uh, appropriate attention or care. There may not be the the ICU bed available for them. And those kinds of shortages, that possibility of shortage and triage, uh, medical selection, uh, that is conscious medical selection, there's always medical selection, but, but self-conscious uh, uh, decision-making on the part of healthcare providers of who will receive treatment and how and when. Um, that uh, all of that was very foreign, say, in a context like North America. People were not used to thinking about that. But in the world of Doctors Without Borders, that's been present all the time. And I spent a lot of time thinking about triage and thinking about the kinds of difficult decisions that uh, healthcare providers can be called upon to make in situations where you have scarcity. And uh, People who live in affluent societies are not used to confronting uh, scarcity. It makes us deeply uncomfortable. Uh, and yet it's a reality, of course, for many, many others living on the planet. But just for um, people who are just tuning in, so we're talking about Doctors Without Borders um, from your 2013 book, Life, Life in Crisis, and, and you you refer to MSF. So I mean, it's a French organization, and I'll I'll... Oh, I'm going to irritate my wife because I'm about to garble the French, but Medicine Sans Frontier, how, how do you, what's the right way to say it? Medicine Sans Frontier is the okay. um, Doctors Without Borders um, is literally the, the translation. Um, they're known in the aid world through their French acronym, which is also an acronym in a number of other languages. Uh, it works across several languages. Uh, so even Doctors Without Borders is MSF USA, uh, the U.S. branch of of them. Um, we can call them Doctors Without Borders for the for the purposes of our show. They go by many names in, in many okay. places. Uh, it's a complicated... They even, yeah, they even stealthily sneak the French acronym into English. Uh, that's uh, There's some members of Congress, once they find that out, they're going to 
they're going to root that oh, out. Oh, absolutely, yes. No, it would, it would be they they'll you'll have to make it Freedom USA or something like that. <laughs> but doctors for free, the, free doctors. Yeah, doc, free doctors for yeah. Um, doctors free of borders. There we go. <laughs> there, that's it. exactly. Um, I, one of the things in the in the book that that I learned a lot about also was was the way that. Um, Doctors Without Borders had to struggle with the sort of boundaries of what medicine is. And when they find themselves in places, once again, th- we used to sort of think of this as um, some distant problem, but, you know, they're offering medical care in places that um, don't have, maybe don't have consistent and high levels of, certainly in, for disasters, high levels of medical um, care, but also places in which wars are ongoing and in which these doctors may themselves become witness to genocide, war crime, or the everyday violence of ongoing war. And it's a provoke this kind of crisis, if I understand it right, a kind of crisis within the crisis where the doctors have to decide, like, is violence a pathology? Is, is violence itself? Do we have a, a duty to intervene or to witness or to go on the witness stand? Um, I never really thought of it quite that way historically until I read your work. And I and I, I want to ask you about that because I also think it has implications for what we've been seeing in the pandemic, where essential workers have been pushed into the role as um, moral and ethical actors to take a stand on things that go beyond just intubating a patient. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's a it's a confounding problem, uh, one which doesn't have a, a simple uh, solution. Uh, and that's part of what I found interesting about the organization is they work out their response through practice, through time. And in different situations, they've tried different things. Um, and in some settings, they um, present themselves very much as being outspoken uh, with certain issues. In other settings, they are less likely to do that if they feel that it's not strategic uh, to do so. Um, Because being too outspoken can also mean that you could be shut down or you could be removed or you could, in the context, say, of the pandemic, if you get into too much of an argument with your relative about vaccination or masking or whatever it might be, it can also damage the relationship in a way that will not achieve the desired effect if if the goal is to get the person to get a vaccine or to mask and not or to do something that would reduce harm to that person or to others um it it can uh, create a it, it can become even larger as a problem than a, uh, than it initially was uh so the you know speaking out uh, is easy to say and easy to conceive, but what exactly, how you speak out and to whom and to what degree, uh, obviously there are moments and genocide for uh, for MSF, the genocide in Rwanda, especially was uh, for Doctors Without Borders, was a, um, uh, a particularly one of several particularly uh, traumatizing, difficult uh, episodes where you've reached a limit of what you can do as a doctor and and what medicine can do. And if people are actively intent on slaughtering others, uh, there is no space for you. I mean, you can try and help, but there is, you can't cure genocides 
medically. It's not a medical problem. Ultimately, it's a political problem. And most of the problems that Doctors Without Borders and similar organizations in the medical humanitarian world deal with are ultimately political problems. They're they're problems of uh, trust and relationship and problems of people of care of whether or not those who are in a position of some degree of power and authority care about the lives and well-being of their citizenry or their neighbors and so on and that's not ultimately a medical uh, issue uh, and their story shows that again and again uh, even if it does have medical effects and so they are constantly responding to problems which have their root causes elsewhere, which they cannot directly, you know, there is no pill to, or injection or a splint that you could, or whatever uh, one could imagine that you can apply to, um, to what is ultimately a political um, uh, issue. You know, thinking about that um, back in the United States, I mean, early on in COVID calls, I had a conversation with a physician in San Francisco named Peter Chin Hong, who's a brilliant doctor and teacher. And, and uh, it was, we talked just before uh, George Floyd was murdered. And then we, and then we also talked after, and um, he was, um, he said something that kind of brought me up short, which is he said, well, everybody in my world knows that racism um, is a public health concern. So he, so he, again, he kind of converged those two worlds in which I had still been sort of thinking of medicine as, you know, not that there weren't activist doctors, but that racism itself was not something you could conceptualize medically. But he said, no, he, he encouraged his medical students to, if they wanted to, that they should be on the streets protesting as well. And they could protest out of conscience, but they could also protest because that should be their job, which is to try to save lives. And it opened up this thing that, broader concern that um, that there's vast inequalities in healthcare in America and they have to do with structural racism and it is the role of a doctor or a public health worker or maybe a nurse to get out there and and do something about that I, it was a really provocative conversation for me and it was right at the that was not yet in wide circulation at that point and then there was the backlash which from predictable places, but also from some unpredictable places for me too, as well, people who said, no, people in medicine need to do medicine. And the minute they open their mouth and start talking about the politics of the world, they discredit themselves. And I imagine you were tracking that discussion as well. I, absolutely. And it's an ongoing, continuing discussion, uh, especially uh, many, not all, but many of the people I met who worked with Doctors Without Borders and similar organizations are deeply upset about the state of the world. And it's obvious to anyone in public health that um, inequality appears in the clinic all the time in the sense you're treating problems. And this is an old observation from, from the longer history of public health, of social medicine, of a variety of different strands and different perspectives. But but that is entirely predictable. And there are many, many studies which have shown this repeatedly under, I mean, if there's one summary of all findings in public health to present, it would be that if you're poorer and you're more oppressed in one way or another, you're most likely statistically to have wealth um, in different parts of the world. And uh, 
racism or other forms of discrimination, other whatever language one might use in different settings, different contexts, uh, people who are at the receiving end of of um, any kind of uh, hierarchical system where they are lower down rather than being higher up, they tend to suffer. And so people who are in healthcare who are have spent some time engaging with problems, especially simple, solvable problems, diseases that are not rare, specialized diseases or new outbreak diseases or you know something where you need really expensive equipment to treat, but very, very basic stuff. And there are people dying all around this world of very basic problems that are not a mystery. It's not, you know, it doesn't require uh, specialized, uh, complicated uh, uh, research to, to uh, treat them. It requires uh, political and economic will. And absent that, uh, it's um, difficult to resolve medically, while at the same time, medically, everybody who's a healthcare professional has to deal with these problems. It's the same thing with gunshot wounds, say, in the United States. I mean, it's obvious that that if you have lots of gunshot wounds, you know, you have to, it, there's, it, it's of a concern for you if you're working in a context where that's a problem. And maybe the one the last thing which I would just throw in, which is, which I learned from following humanitarianism is, especially if people are working in open conflict settings, because um, it's one thing to demonstrate, but demonstration assumes a particular kind of of context where you you can. Um, if you're in an active uh, war zone where politics has spilled over directly into uh, or spilled over into direct violence and direct opposition, um, I, it can be very important to say things, but it's also incumbent to think strategically about your politics. And there are moments, and this is a difficult thing to say in relation to politics, because I also became his, interested in the history of neutrality, which is complicated um, and tied with the history of war. Uh, but there are forms of neutrality, which I think can be strategic at given moments, which it's that you don't necessarily want to make them essential. You don't want to hold them permanently. But in a given moment, uh, neutrality can also be a weapon of the weak as well as as a consensus of the mm. powerful. And keeping that in mind, I think, can be useful when dealing with tricky uh, political problems related to health at tense moments of negotiation. So there might be moments where you'd want to play the I'm just a doctor, even while at the same time uh, really aiming towards, could you please follow these uh, simple guidelines and make everyone a little healthier and safer? As it maybe helps me understand Dr. Anthony Fauci a little bit. I've heard him do both in the last mm -hmm. two years. And under the last presidency, he he often did frame himself, and this is not open warfare, but I think it's fair to say the United States um, always lives on the edge of small scale, you know, and there's plenty of small terrorist acts going on day by day in the United States and plenty of violence. Um, but yeah, he sort of has gone back and forth and I, he's been much more aggressive uh, since Biden's been elected and saying what he thinks and going up to Congress and lecturing Rand Paul and things like that. And I don't want to draw a parallel if it's not apt, but I, but at the same time, I think about early days of the pandemic, Italy, Spain, um, health system uh, overrun, 
you know, United States, pick your state, as you said earlier on. I mean, I just heard in the news today, Idaho is now in medical. They have a special statewide declaration, which basically means they're in triage. Don't expect to go to the hospital and be treated unless you're more grievously injured than the person sitting next to you. ICU beds in parking lots and, and hallways. I mean, do we need doctors without borders in the U.S.? And, and, I, and I ask that not as a flip question, but, but because I also wonder what, this, what the sort of psychology is of that and what the potential policy outcome of that is. A sort of recognition that, that we've tipped over into a set of situations that we can no longer call normal and we can no longer call under control. And so it requires some humanitarian, what we might call humanitarian intervention. Maybe never people never thought you'd need that in Iowa or Nebraska or Idaho or New Jersey or Texas. But pick your state. And in the last 18 months, it's it's looked like that. Uh, certainly. And you could say there are versions of that. I mean, you have traveling healthcare professionals who have moved. You may remember uh, in, in New York City early on, there was in, in the dark days in New York, there were a whole set of of people who arrived, uh, both volunteers and people who are contracted to to work um, in New York, um, some of whom did all kinds of wonderful things, other of whom arrived, you know, at a moment where they didn't have that much to do. Um, and there were different stories that that uh, came out, uh, and so we could you know see certain kinds of parallels along those lines. I think the the one thing I would keep in mind, or two things I would keep in mind um, with that uh, parallel, are that many people in organizations like Doctors Without Borders have a conceit. They at least like to say that the world should not need them. Um, that if the world was was operating properly, they would be redundant. Um, and certainly, one can make that case, and, and it was made, say, during the Ebola outbreak, that. Um, why would it fall to um, uh, non-governmental organizations to do this work? Why are there not um, formal political organizations to do this work? And many of the people who work for Dogs Without Borders have a belief in there being a stronger healthcare system. And a lot of, uh, I mean, part of the background history of Ebola and the background history of of uh, COVID, though, again, it's it's also shown up uh, healthcare systems which are relatively stronger as ones as well as ones that are weaker. So I'm putting the footnote before the statement, um, uh, but it's exposed met inadequacy across healthcare systems around the world, and many efforts to save save money or become more efficient, run things in a more business oriented fashion, uh, classic neoliberal policy, have also resulted in uh, fewer resources uh, when you find out that you need them. And you suddenly find out the extraordinary thing, I think, for any historian of technology also in this in this country, <laughs> to suddenly find out there is no manufacturing capability in the United States for personal protective equipment, uh, you know, PPE, which is a term I learned about through Doctors Without Borders, but suddenly entered everyday conversation um, and suddenly realizing that all of these things uh, that we depend on in, in middle class uh, suburban life in the United States are quite fragile uh, and open to disruption. 
which leads to your terrain, of course, of disasters and disaster research, which I believe is going to be a growth market in coming decades, uh, sadly. Uh, but uh, there's going to be no shortage of things for you to discuss um, in coming years. And it just exposes again and again the short-sightedness of some of our conceptions of value and how to evaluate the functioning of different systems. Um, and so, yes, you know, certainly, I mean, Idaho could use a contingent, probably, they could also use more ICU beds. Uh, right. But unless someone is willing to put them in place and pay for them, and maybe figure out why is healthcare so ludicrously expensive in the United States? Um, I mean, it's expensive everywhere, but why is it so exceptionally expensive when you look comparatively? It costs so much more in the United States right. than in any other country. Right. Uh, you know, all of those kinds of questions, I think, come out in these moments of crisis. They get revealed. Um, and, of course, the difficult task then is to take that insight and actually do something with it as the crisis recedes, is the moment when it's no longer acute. Um that's the real political challenge is to do things on ordinary days and just not only on exceptional days. I, I worry about loss of memory a, a lot at this time that, that the, if there's not photographs taken, if there's not good stories written and um, government doing its job and, and actually writing what went poorly so that the hospital became uh, a place where you have to do triage. I mean, a photograph of an ICU that's now spilled out into a parking lot, that's a powerful image, but I worry that those things are going to go in the memory hole in the United States because um, that's not something that there's no, there's no hospital director or insurance company or politician in America, Democrats included, who have much incentive um, to show that the system is as broken as it is. Absolutely not. Or that, you know, you have county hospitals serving as as uh, points of care through emergency rooms, which has long been a complicated, difficult history of workarounds for people who are uninsured in, uh, in the United States. Uh, I would add one uh, footnote that I think is a potential of interest to you and maybe your audience, but certainly to you as a historian, um, uh, to be thinking about with this term triage is that it comes uh, from uh, a French verb for sorting, for selecting, and it comes mm. historically from military uh, medicine. And, and the formal and first form of triage and the military form of triage and disaster form of triage is what we're discussing here, uh, which is includes the possibility that if you have people you cannot help anymore, you don't have the supplies to help them and you think their odds of making it aren't very good, you just palliate them and you try and make them as comfortable as you possibly can and you leave them to their fate because you need to pay attention to those you can save. It's a focus on, on right. uh, saving who's salvageable. And that's very painful and very difficult for our most of our ethical sensibilities and, and um, 
philosophical positions. But the triage is also a very common ordinary practice in most medical systems like hospitals in the United States, which also means sorting, but it just means who's going to be seen first. A hospital forms of triage. That's what we're accustomed to. Uh, and so you might have to wait a long time if you're in the ER and you're not bleeding out and, you know, you look like you can sit there for 12 hours without expiring. Then they might leave you there for 12 hours while they deal with other people who have bigger problems. Uh, but you expect to be seen eventually. And the notion that we might be in a place where some people will not be seen at all, um, that is the whole also fear of death panels and everything else that, you know, has been running through the... Um, American debates about healthcare, uh, but the reality is all systems have to select, and it's not an individual choice. And especially if you're ever unconscious, you're not going to be in control of your your right. destiny, which is the great blindness of people who imagine health to be a personal affair and a choice solely. Because there'll be many moments in life, early in life and late in life, and then in difficult moments, emergency moments in life, where you may have no choice at all. Someone else has to be choosing for you. Talking to Peter, Peter Redfield on COVID balls today, and I, I want to uh, come to an article that, that you wrote, again, in what we might call the early pandemic or the early American stage of the pandemic. You wrote a piece in Cultural Anthropology titled The Danger of a Single Threat. And I want to read a sentence from this and, and get you to talk a little bit about this. It raises some problems that have been on my mind, but I hadn't thought of them quite as clearly as this. You wrote, there are always many things that can kill you. People will continue to die from multiple causes during a pandemic, both quickly and slowly. Years of tracking medical humanitarianism impressed on me. One humbling, simple realization, healthcare is never a singular proposition. So that comes back. You were you were sounding some of these notes earlier of the problem maybe you discovered in your research on Doctors Without Borders. There's the pandemic, which brings the film crew, but then there's also dengue fever and and everything else that's going on normal disaster um i worry about that a, a lot with covid and we have some ways of visualizing it i i think we don't have the numbers we need to tell the story but like so-called elective procedures which have been pushed aside some of those are more elective than others i mean you know people who need knee and hip replacements for example and now are incapacitated because they can't get into the hospital. Just one example. So why did you have this, this concern in mind? And, and say a little bit more about the, the piece, because this the danger, because uh, it's a little, something a little counterintuitive, which is to say, well, we have this monster in front of us, COVID. But you're saying, yes, but look behind and around him, too. Exactly. No, that sums it up that if you're so focused on the monster in front of you, you may miss the other ones who are coming from behind. Uh, right. I mean, in any good setup and I'm not a big fan of horror films, but that's that's precisely the way you set things up. You set people up to be vulnerable as they're very focused on a particular direction. And then uh, at an oblique angle, something else will get them. And that's that's what uh, thrills us as an audience. Uh, and I think that that applies more generally. Um, you know, even if you have a debilitating health condition, it may not, not be the thing that ultimately causes you the most harm. It may be the biggest concern uh, facing you. Uh, but it 
it should not lead you to forget that there are many other things. There are many, many other contagious diseases. Uh, there are many pathogens, um, and there are many beneficial microbes also, I should say, we think. I mean, we live in a world where we're starting to explore, biologically speaking, we're starting to explore the microbiome, and we're trying to think about not just sanitation in a 19th century sense of total sterilization, but also what kinds of balances do we live with in terms of our our environment, our immediate vicinity, our milieu, the people we inhabit with, um, space with, how do we, how do we uh, coexist in this world? Uh, and so I was struck during the pandemic precisely by the focus on cleanliness, um, which is not a bad idea. And I mean, definitely sterilization is probably a good thing in many contexts, uh, but it's not, it, it, it's, it's like carpet bombing. You know, I mean, the way that if you sanitize uh, utterly, you're getting rid of everything. You have no idea what you're really doing. And the history of carpet bombing shows that it's not a very good tool strategically for most military uh, um, uh, exercises, most military operations. So uh, <clears throat> uh, keeping that in mind that with the pandemic, um, healthcare is about all kinds of things. And any doctor who has a career and treats patients at some point has to come to grips with the fact that ultimately all those patients are going to die, even if you're the best doctor ever, uh, just as you, all of us will. I mean, not to leave you with a, a, a grim note, but it is uh, all of us who are adults at some point we come to this realization that if there is any immortal part of us, it won't simply be this physical form. Um, uh, it will be uh, something else that we put a stake, have a stake in. Uh, this physical form is mortal. And if we don't believe in other forms of mortality or believe in reincarnation or whatever else, uh, it will be a different world that we would occupy. Um, and recognizing that medically, I think, is is important, especially at those moments of crisis and disaster, because as you say, the cameras are on something. And it's easy for a good photogenic crisis, it's easy to get attention. For something that's short, quick, and immediate, people will respond, and they'll respond very generously, frequently. That's also what most of the evidence shows. Short-term, people will be incredibly caring and giving, many of them, uh, to their neighbors. Longer term, it can be a problem. And as well, uh, for everything that might be slower, everything that might be chronic, might be ongoing, it's very hard to get attention for that and to recognize those kinds of disasters too. Um, you know, forms of slower violence as opposed to fast uh, violence, to use uh, Rob Nixon's uh, term for it. Or structural violence, various ways of talking about things which are deeper and slower as opposed to immediate and acute. Well, let me follow up on that because it's it's something I'm really interested in, in too, that, um, and this has been a time in which there have been many opportunities, and I think many skilled health communicators have used this opportunity, um, as they should, to show just what we were just talking about. Okay, well, the healthcare system is actually underserved. We should have more beds in a rural health setting, for example, or um, COVID demonstrates um, even in very wealthy countries, um, the vast amount of chronic illness that's, that's out there, so-called underlying conditions. Um, and, and you may note, just a little note, I've been 
and then going back and rereading all of the obituaries that I read on COVID calls. And in the early days, first couple of months, whether or not somebody had an underlying condition was often emphasized. And, and I think that was a sort of a, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a parenthetical here, but I think it's, I think it's an interesting one, at least to me, that there was still this moment of coping at that time to say that if you're a really healthy person, you still don't need to worry about COVID because you had to have an underlying condition to be vulnerable to it. I, I see that kind of disappearing by the summer of last year. But I think the larger point is, um, what are the structures that are out there that keep us from being able to focus on more than one of these threats at the same time? You talked about the the photogenic nature of disaster. So part of it may be a media culture that has to tell a story and it's hard to tell a complicated story. You can tell one if you have an hour, but you can't tell one if you have 40 seconds. Maybe it's the way the health system itself is structured or the emergency management system is structured, which is often very military. It's dealing with the problem in front of you. You deal with that problem and then you deal with the next. It's not good at fighting multiple battles simultaneously. Um, or maybe there's, you know, I've, I've wondered about this too, I and mean, it's sort of social psychology of risk and disaster. Some, and some people have said, well, this is an advantage for humans. Evolutionarily, it's advantageous for us to focus on one thing and then forget about bad things that happen. It keeps us, um, you know, always ready to run from the bear. I, as a historian, I'm often a little uncomfortable with psychosocial kind of explanations of human behavior because they move us into a context-free space. You don't have to choose from that that list of, of multiple choice, Peter, but I'm curious what you, again, like this is a problem of singular focus. There should be a way out of it. Well, I, first I would say my answer would probably be all of the above. I, I mean, I think it would be a, a situation where we would need at least another hour or two to begin to scratch the surface of all the different factors uh, at play. Um, there's also the fact that people get become accustomed to many different kinds of situations, and I think that people you know people get tired of uh, a given story. And especially if you live in a media culture which are used to very fast changing uh, entertainment, it can be harder to have the same thing playing in regular life uh, constantly. So. All of the above, uh, absolutely, um, I would say, at a way out. Um, I think part of it is a couple. One thing that would be counterintuitive is accepting that safety can never be 100%. There's no guarantee of security. And security as a concept is inflationary, and so is health. And both of them, you can never have too much of it, and yet it will never be enough in the end, because in the end, as just noted, sadly, um, we expect, like all our ancestors, to pass beyond this this world, and so uh, it's um, this life, and so uh, it, it, there's a kind of illusion built into both the pursuit of health and the pursuit of uh, security, um, and disasters are those moments where you realize vulnerability. And I think most of our ancestors, from many different cultural traditions, all cultural traditions, dealt with what we now might term risk. They were aware of the fact that the world could have unexpected things. And there, there's a lot of storytelling and a lot of mythology that constantly reminds us of that. And there may be other forces that have greater control than you know any sense that we can um, 
exert control over our lives completely is inevitably shown to be an illusion. Uh, and that's a hard truth, I think, to, to grapple with, and yet ultimately a very important one. So as, a, as an anthropologist and, a, and an ethnographer, we've done, you've done all kinds of very complicated ethnographic projects. Um, I wonder, you know, is, is ethnography in crisis somehow different? And, and I think about this in two ways. One is those like yourself who are specialized in thinking about the kinds of things we've just been talking about and finding the stories and the, and the structures and the cultural systems that you need to tap into, the people you need to get to trust you so that you can really get them to open up about everything we've just been talking about. But I've also been thinking about all of the many people who study culture whose lives have been disrupted uh, by the pandemic, who've now had to adapt their ethnographic practice to distance or to the reality that maybe they wanted to study one thing about culture in a place, but now everything is about, again, what we we're just talking about, it's about COVID or about the package of health insecurity that comes with COVID. So I guess I don't want you to give up all your trade secrets, but at the same time, like ethnography at this time may be evolving or, or it's in a particular moment. I, I wonder sort of methodologically what you think that might be about. I think it's absolutely evolving and it has been for some time because, uh, I mean, there are different versions of ethnography and different histories of ethnography that one can, can tell. Um, but in, to give you a short, simple story, uh, it's developed for village life, essentially, methodologically. So it's a face-to-face, small-scale society where right. you can go be somewhere and talk to people and get a sense of what is going on by virtue of doing that. And anthropologists have been following problems, um, especially people who studied things like science, technology, disasters, uh, healthcare, um, that and things which were transnational that didn't quite fit that village uh, form. And people have been working online for, for quite some time. So there, there are various forms of ethnography uh, that can grapple with an absence of presence or work at a distance and so on. It's a different kind of exercise. It's not the same, but it's um, nonetheless a, a methodological approach. Uh, the one thing I'd say in terms of crisis, emergency, the concepts I was trying to think about, especially in relation to humanitarianism and uh, disasters more generally, is I actually think this is a place where the methods of an ethnographer and the methods of a historian might converge at, time, at times. Because if you're looking at a phenomenon that has, which is very presentist and very focused on a concentrated moment, uh, from my perspective, one of the uh, most revealing approaches is to expand the time frame around it and look what happened before and what happened afterward. So you begin to see that there might be a prehistory to this particular episode or whatever it is, you know, a catastrophic flood or, or um, uh, an outbreak disease or a war. Uh, and you realize that it didn't just uh, descend uh, from the sky, you know, in a single day, it came from somewhere. And then after the cameras leave, there's usually another story that goes on. And there's a lot of very good work that's been done, say, in the aftermath of the earthquake in Haiti, showing the longer, um, the long durée, the longer trajectory of what a disaster uh, looks like, especially in a setting which has been 
uh, a long, painful, political, colonial um, uh, site of of uh, suffering and resilience and rebuilding and experiences of a variety of different kinds of, of forms of disaster over uh, time. Um, uh, so Haiti is a very particular context, and it's also a setting which is full of aid organizations and so on. But there's been a lot of good work there. And then other parts of the world, people have been doing this as well. And that's part for me why I wanted to look at, I ended up deciding I would think about try and work on Doctors Without Borders more slowly, partly as a justification that I'm just a slow guy. And so, you know, I don't do things quickly. Uh, but uh, that it, at the same time, the justification part of it, the rationale was that that can actually be revealing. Uh, when you go back, and when you look at something years on, it can tell you something about what happens that commentary at a moment might not. Mm. And for this pandemic, I think it's probably also true. There will be later things that may emerge and come out that will augment and alter our understanding of the experiences we might be having right now. We're almost up on time in my discussion with Peter Redfield here today. And um, Peter, actually, I'd like to just um, close out by asking you what you're working on next. I don't, I don't know if you have a book length project that's sort of in, in the making, or you've been also writing a lot of, of essays in, in this time, in pandemic time. So what should we be looking for from you in, in the coming year or years? Well, I've been working on another project that I imagined would be a quicker one, but it's turned into a slower one as well. I've been writing bits and pieces of it in essays, but I hope it will also be eventually a, a short book uh, looking at uh, little devices. Um, that is certain kinds of small inventions that people are creating, um, innovations to try and intervene in what were once called social problems, that is large problems of, say, um, uh, healthcare uh, or basic human needs, breakdown of infrastructure, you know, having clean drinking water, uh, mm -hmm. how to have electricity if you don't have any uh, power center nearby or you don't have a stable grid, uh, how you create devices that can function um, in off-grid settings, in disaster settings. Um, and I'm interested in this uh, partly because some of them are interesting stories in and of themselves and they're kind of fascinating. They reflect a kind of human ingenuity, but also because they, I think, reveal a lot about our imagination of what are problems, what are solutions, uh, what are the ways ways in which we might frame a problem and the scale with which we imagine the future, especially when people are less optimistic about the future than they might have been earlier in the 20th century and episodes of building big infrastructure, you know, big, large technical systems, you know, massive uh, uh, interventions. Uh, and so uh, that's what I've been um, uh, tracking and hope to have more to say about in coming years. That sounds... Uh... Fantastic. And I think it will also, this COVID time, uh, you know, getting the history, I'm sure people are collecting this, the, the history of what's happened inside healthcare settings um, to deal with absence or breakdown of machines and the, the coping skills and the ingenuity um, of essential workers in those moments has, has been pretty staggering, I imagine, that some of it quite nauseating, I think, in some ways, the improvisation of PPE 
So if you're seeing nurse wearing a garbage bag, you might think, what have we come to? But on the other hand, that's a safety device made in the moment to to save the essential worker's life. I, I don't know if that's if that kind of improvisation is in your mind when you think about this project, but it's been in my mind with COVID. Absolutely. I mean, that's part of how I first got launched on this project was because in the world of Doctors Without Borders and similar organizations, there is a lot of improvisation. Improvisation is necessary in order to get systems to function uh, frequently, even at the same time that they've created uh, systems and kits and a whole uh, mode of dealing with uncertainty in terms of little devices and packaging, and not all of them are little, but uh, but creating a modular system of response. Um, and so I became interested in this. And yes, uh, the pandemic has been a gold mine for this stuff, um, especially the early pandemic. Uh, but I think the the larger stories and the reminder, I mean, it's like climate change and all the rest of the shadows currently haunting our present. Uh, there's there's a moment of realization that we live in an era where we may have to do a lot of improvising again. Um, and that's disruptive to people who are used to sort of steady state modernist norms of living in, in buildings like the one where I imagine we both are currently. We're all systems are humming in the background just working and we we don't pay any attention to them until they break down just a reminder you've been listening to covid calls and tomorrow i have a two covid calls episodes back to back at 6 p.m eastern time please catch my discussion about disaster memorials in east asia with alex janya and christina burnham and and then at 7 30 p.m please catch uh, a return conversation with two teachers Angela Miner and Rebecca Martinson, and I will have co-host Shivani Patel. And this is coming back to a conversation we had one year ago. So this is a back-to-school conversation on COVID calls with two teachers um, who will tell us about what the last year has been like for them. So please do join me tomorrow at 6 and 7.30 p.m. for COVID calls. And I just want to thank Peter Redfield. Uh, been looking forward to this conversation for months, Peter, and I had to reschedule it too. And, and thank you for accommodating that. And it's great to be with you, my friend. And, and likewise, and thanks so much for having me. I've enjoyed this immensely. And thanks for doing this series. It sounds absolutely wonderful. So I will be tuning in in the future. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 6 p.m. 